Okay, good morning, everybody. Hi, Ma. Welcome to Parashat Miketz. Uh, let's do our learning for the Refuah Shelema of Yafa Esther Batrachel and also Lilui Nishmat Moshe Ben Sarah. We're going to start at the very beginning of Miketz, which is really the end. Miketz means at the end of. So let's read a little bit and then backtrack, move forward. Vahimi Ketz Shnatayim Yamim. And it was at the end of two, in text, yamim are usually shanim, at the end of two years. Paro cholem and paro dreams. Vehine, and lo and behold, of course, vehine is divinely inspired. Follow this word in the narrative telling of paro's dream. This word vehine is going to appear six times. Vehine omed al sifat hayeor. And here is Paro, and he was standing on the Sefat HaYeor. The minute we just read that first verse, it forces us to flash back. Here we go again. There are more dreams taking place. This time as well, it will be a pair of dreams. Like last week, Yosef had a pair of dreams, and then the butler and the baker had a pair of dreams. Here too, Paro is going to have a pair of dreams. And it would be interesting to note that his dreams are going to be placed by the Ye'od, which is by the riverbank. It's going to focus a lot on that. And we know that in the Mesopotamian region, they the belief was that the river itself was a deity because it allowed for the fertilization, that whole crescent fertile was really all governed by this overflowing Ye'or. So it's interesting to note, whereas Yosef's dream are taking place in the Sadeh, the place for divine encounter where Hashem is the divinity, here Paro is already expressing to us uh, what his persuasions are, what he's seeing in his dreams. And of course, when it says after two years, we have to ask, where are we counting from? What are the two years that are being recorded here? And if we just do a tiny little rewind, we will see, see that the last we heard of Yosef, he had interpreted the butler's dream and the baker's dream. We didn't have enough time last week to cover them, but I will tell you briefly that one of the things that Yosef um, came away with from interpreting those dreams, and I'll say this, all of the dreams were for Yosef's benefit. They didn't just come to his desk haphazardly. He engaged with his own dreams and then was in the forefront of the dreams of the butler and the baker and this week of Pad'o, because those dreams were as much for their dreamers and possibly even more so for Yosef. So the takeaway last week that Yosef uh, on his journey is now able to grow from was he had seen that the butler was describing his dream and in his dream he was very active he uses words like va'ekach va'eschot va'eten it's called a rikuz pe'alim in hebrew 
which means there is a compounding of verbs. Simply said, the butler is very active in his dream. And if we want to have a takeaway for Yosef, it is that dreams are instructional. They're not just going to tell you, Yosef, you're going to become king and your brothers are going to bow to you. From the butler, Yosef realizes that he has to bring it about, that he has to take actions that we, rather, if we want to realize our own dreams, we have to play an active role in our lives, sitting back and waiting for things to happen to us or being reactive is going to get us where the baker landed because in his dream, all of a sudden, so I'll just say this, the butler was active in the way that he was squeezing grapes, he was making wine, he was bringing it to the king in contrast with the baker who tells his dream and notifies us that all of a sudden there were three baskets of baked goods on his head. It doesn't tell us in any way how they ended up there, whether he baked them, did he grow the wheat, did he grind it, nothing. They just ended up on his, these three salim, end up on his head. And on top of that, just to double down on the inactivity of the baker, birds come to pick from these beautiful baked delicacies that are on his head and the baker does not react. He doesn't flinch. He sits like a lump on a log and allows things to happen to him. He considers his life, his fate. He doesn't realize that he plays a role in his own destiny. And that's what ends up happening is because he doesn't play a starring role in his own life, he ends up being the one that in three days time is going to be hung. So we leave this story, and for another day, it's just interesting to note, for those of you who have Yechumashim open, the word kos in the story of the butler, the word cup, the goblet, the wine cup, is mentioned four times. And many of us believe that this is already planting the seeds of redemption. And what I mean by that is, you know, we drink four cups on Pesach and kos, 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 and kos appears four times in two, three verses here. He's telling us, or the Torah is recording for us, what is the path to redemption? The path to redemption where you're going to be drinking those four kosot, vehotseti, vehitzalti, vegaalti, velakarti, those four cups of redemption will be had but it's going to require an active, for us to play an active role in bringing it about, just like the butler had. So with all of this, I'll just add to it, Yosef realizes and says, hey, I'm sitting here and I'm waiting for a miracle to happen. I'm waiting for something. I don't even know what I'm waiting for. Let me take matters into my own hands. And I know that there are commentaries that admonish Yosef for asking the butler to put in a good word for him when he does see the light of day. I'd like to take the attitude today that good for Yosef, he saw an opportunity and he seized it. He tells 
the butler, Ganov Gunavti, I was stolen from the land of the Ivrim. Vegam polo asiti meuma, I did nothing wrong, kisamu oti babor, that they put me in this pit. He's trying to plead his innocence to somebody who may be in a position, especially if he's pouring wine for the king, maybe he'll find it in his heart to tell the king, you know, I met a guy in the jail who really is innocent. You may want to revisit his case. Was it a long shot? Yeah. Would anybody bet money on the probability that the butler is going to put a good word in for the Jewish slave that's imprisoned? Is he going to stick his neck out, especially when he's on thin ice himself? I don't think so. But this is how Torah works. It whispers to us and tells us opportunities, even if they're a 1,000%, 1.1,000 or whatever, tiny percent chance of their uh, working. It's a Hail Mary. It's a bottom of the ninth emergency uh, swinging for the bleachers. I don't know what you want to call it. But if we believe that all we have to do is open a tiny little hole and then Hashem is going to carry our uh, plea, our ball, our request, our uh, 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 need for his intervention, which is going to be miraculous. So you know what? Even if it's a thousandth of a percent chance, by making the effort, you just gave yourself huge odds because you're saying what Yosef is saying. And he's saying, Maybe he wasn't saying that here, I didn't do anything wrong. I don't deserve my fate. Maybe he's saying, I didn't do anything about it. I didn't try to help myself. And reaching out to you, Mr. Butler, is my attempt to take a long shot and do what is in my wheelhouse, to do what I can do. We know all the things you can't do. We know you can't go for an appeal. We know nobody wants to hear your story, Yosef. You're lucky if anybody even knows you're still alive. But there's always, and this is Yosef's, I think this is one of his greatest lessons for humanity is, there's always something. And if we allow the rational part of our brain to say, don't bother trying, it's a lost cause, it means that we shut down the room and the space for God to do his thing. You just give him that opening. And that's really what's going to happen in this week's parasha. And just as interesting as it could be, right after that, we find our fifth course, you know, in our seder, the fifth, fifth course is course Eliyahu. And that course is the course of redemption. That cup is the cup, course Yeshuot Esa, the cup that says that Yeshua salvation is on the way. Why is this so beautiful? And why does this make most people thrilled to discover? There's not just four cups in our story, there is the fifth cup, and the fifth cup of redemption comes 
when we decide that we are going to do whatever it takes, even if it's the smallest effort, because that's the only options that are at our disposal, when we take those steps, the fifth cup, the cause of redemption, is going to appear. And sure enough, this week we start with Pado has a dream. I'd like to suggest that Pado has this dream because Yosef asked for help. The dream is going to be the vehicle for his release from the pit, the incarceration, the bowels of Egypt. And so, after two years, Paro has this dream. This is where we already read this. And behold, I want to say it now. The way this is interesting for us because the text is going to give us an accounting of Pharaoh's two dreams. And then Pharaoh himself is going to give us an accounting of his two dreams. And the two are not going to be identical. One may be subjective, one may be objective, which is going to be the case because the way Pado is going to relate to something is going to be from his own personal relationship to what he saw. How he saw it may not be exactly how it was presented. What's going to be so beautiful is that when Yosef interprets the dream for Paro, he's going to be interpreting both versions of the dream. So let's start right now and see what happens. He says, And from the river, Up from the river come these magnificent seven cows. They are beautiful to look at. They are robust. They are full, and they are grazing in the marsh. I've suggested in the past the words should conjure for us, should give us a flashback of Yosef where he was and Echav are spelt the same way. So maybe now Yosef, in hearing Pado's dreams, by the way, this is not his version of hearing it yet. He's going to hear it in the next telling. But this, again, is the um, narrative uh, account, the Torah telling us what happens. Um, so here they are, these magnificent grazing cows. Verse 3, And now there are seven other cows. They come up after them from the Yeod, from the riverbank. But these guys are If the other ones were Yefot these are Ra'ot These guys are their uh, the visual of them, the sight of them is horrible. They're skinny, they're scrawny, they're weak, they're not the pick of the litter. Now, these next six words are words that we're not going to find in Pado's telling. Maybe to Pado, they weren't so important. He left out a detail, 
possibly that was of no interest to him, or at least he felt had no bearing. And these are the words that we're going to focus on today. Vata'amodna etzel haparot al sefat hayeor. You could say it's a small detail that the scrawny, undesirable cows stood next to the other cows on the riverbank. Not anything earth-shattering unless we recognize that the whole importance of Yosef's original dreams that they were me'almim alumim, that they were together, that they were bundling themselves together, that they were all in the same place at the same time. They were connected. They were co-joined, we said, even if you take sheaves and tie them together, they're totally, totally uh, um, connected. This idea that the skinny cows and the fat cows could stand side by side is a very important story for Yosef. Because it seems that last week, we had said that the children of Leah seemed to be on one team because Yosef was on another team with, he was a Na'ad et bene bilhave et bene zilpah. It sounds like the Shefachot or the Nashim of Yaakov, those, the two, Bilha and Zilpah, together with Rachel's children were one team, and Leah's children were one team. And I had also suggested in the past, I'll suggest it here again, that maybe what Yosef is going to see, or the visual that Yosef is going to get when he hears the dream of Paro, is that the seven robust cows may have been the children the children of Leah. And if you tell me she only had six sons and we have to fix it because we like everything to match beautifully, I'll throw in Dina for good measure. And I'll tell you, if that makes you happy, there are the seven children of Leah. And they are the ones that were considered, if you think of Reuven, Shimon, Levi, Yehuda, each one was a, a big, robust, not just physically, but every one of them, we've had um, experience with those children of Leah. And side, next to them, standing by their side, or maybe in comparison to those seven, to the children of Leah, Maybe the children of Bilha, Zilpa, and Rachel seemed like they were a little bit ra'ot mar'eh. You know, they used to bring dibatam ra'ah. The idea that the other children, the acherot, they were the acher, they were the other ones. Maybe they were the children, and I know Rachel and the Shefachot only had six sons in total, but if it makes us feel better... Yosef actually becomes two tribes, Ephraim and Menashe. So if you need things to fit nicely, just so you could, you know, stay with the analogy, I'll give you Ephraim and Menashe and I'll swap out Yosef just for the point of the analogy. But really what I wanted to say is that Paro's dream, although Torah is recording, what we should be focusing on is that they have the ability to stand and coexist side by side. Actually, that also explains Yosef's second dreams, 
second dream where we said it was very odd that the sun and the moon and the stars should all be present at the same time. That doesn't usually happen. It's or the sun or the stars. It's tzet hakochavim, right? It's shekiyat hachama or tzet hakochavim. To have everybody together, present and accountable at the same time, which I would like to suggest is what God is telling Yosef in his dream. If you're going to be a king and everybody's going to bow down to your shiva, everybody's going to bow down to you, in order to make that happen, there needs to be a place for everybody. Not that everybody has to be in their place, is that you need to make space for the tovot and the dakot, for the sun and the moon. You need to be me'almim alumim, your ketonet pasim should represent that everybody, like the choshen that the kohen wears, everybody needs to be represented. You need to be uniform, excuse me, unified, despite the fact that you're not uniform. And this perasha, if I don't get to say it through the course of the perasha, is going to have another very important word that's going to trail the entire perasha. And that word is going to be echad, one. Happens to be that this word one, echad, appears exactly 12 times. And wouldn't you know, the word echad is rarely speaking about the same person. It's not even always talking about a brother. Sometimes it's, it's talking about the night or the weed or the dreams. Sometimes it's talking about Yosef or Yaakov. Sometimes it's about a random brother. One time it's about Shimon. One time it's about Levi. Why is this so important to us? There are 12 brothers, but every single one of those brothers is the Echad. Meaning, without one brother, you can't have echad. You need, we need all 12 to have echad. And when the 12 of us are echad, what are we attracting? Hashem echad. We're attracting God. We're bringing God into our world. The achdut down below is going to be what's going to activate the uh, divine uh, presence. And we know this, unity, achdut, is going to bring redemption. There's no question about it. We're seeing it in our day today. The minute we unify, God comes into our camp and fights our battles with us. If there is, God forbid, disunity, as there had been with Yosef, Disunity is the cause of exile because they are ultimately going to become exiled. This is the beginning of the exile into Egypt. They're going to come down now to get food from Yosef and he's going to house them in Goshen. So disunity is going to bring not only exile, but defeat. So if the, you wanted to just walk away with an easy lesson from the perasha, is that that word echad is saying, the Echad means Levi is the Echad, Yosef is the Echad, like a Sefer Torah, if you're missing one letter, you're not Echad. You're not whole. A Sefer Torah is Pasul if it's missing a letter. 
So here, in telling of the dreams and in telling of the story, the Torah magnificently weaves in this word echad so that we can catch the significance of it. And how, how can we? Just to repeat, vata'amodna. We need to be able to stand side by side. What happens in Paro's dream in verse 4 is that the skinny cows end up swallowing the big fat cows. Now, we, we really have to talk about this because we didn't pay enough to the attention to the idea that the word miketz, which means at the end of, is going to play with the next words that we're going to see now the, when the seven beautiful cows um, I mean, when the seven scrawny cows eat up the seven beautiful cows, it says, Vayikatz paro. Paro awakens. We need to talk about this a little bit and maybe be um, honest with each other when we read these words. Miketz and Vayikatz. Miketz means at the end of. So Vayikatz paro, when paro awakens, it means that his dream ended. It's a natural way for the dream. Uh, it was the end of the dream and he himself awakens naturally. There's another word in Hebrew for being prodded awake, for being awakened. That would be lehit ored, like from the words uri uri devorah, uri uri dabrishir, you know, from Shoftim, when Barak and Devorah go fight this battle, there's a beautiful song, Uri Uri Devorah means to wake up, but it's somebody that is prodded awake. They're mostly awakened by God because the awakening has an enlightenment about it. This Vayikatz Paro is going to spell out for us the difference from being awake and the difference between being woke. And I do mean woke in today's language, it's a hard word to process, but maybe the Torah was way ahead of its time. And maybe the Torah is starting to give us a message here. And maybe there's good cows and there's bad cows, and there's privileged cows and there's underprivileged cows, and there's the oppressed and there are the oppressors. All of that is in this story. We see it with Yosef and his brothers, and we see how it plays out. And the Torah is going to give us a very clear message of what works and what doesn't work. So in this story of Paro awakening, or maybe becoming awoken, this is the version of the dream that he has. Just want to give you a little more context so that we could understand it together. He has a second dream as well, and this time it involves the sheaves and the shibolim. He goes back to sleep again, and this time, vayishan, he goes to sleep, vayachalom, and he dreams, and this time, it's Shainit. He has a second dream. And there are seven beautiful uh, stalks of wheat, and then seven stalks of wheat that are withered and not so robust come growing up after them. And the seven skinny wheats swallow up the seven 
beautiful wheats. And again, we have this word, and he wakes up and he realizes all along this was a dream, but he is completely aggrieved by it. He's uncomfortable, he's agitated by it. So he calls for his um, interpreters, his, the court is filled. If, if, if with nothing, they, that's what Pharaoh's court had at all times, or you know, the wise men, the dream interpreters, the sorcerers, all of that. And he explains the dream, but nobody could seem to uh, decipher it. In poter or tamle paro, they can't decipher it in a way that paro feels uh, comfortable. They had, they're not hitting. They're not hitting the nail on the head for him. He's still agitated, and he believes because of the, all of the vehines, he believes that this is prophecy, and he wants to understand it, and he needs to get it right. Because clearly, as we're going to see, if he doesn't understand this dream. This is the end of Egypt and possibly the entire world. If they don't save up food during the famine, who knows what's going to happen? Egypt is the only place in the world that has food at the time of famine. So he knows something needs to be done, but he doesn't understand the dream and he doesn't know what he has to do. And at this point, Sad Hamashkim, the long shot, the dark horse, the 1% chance that we never thought was going to come about, sure enough, he says, I have a confession to make, King Pharaoh. You had gotten angry. You threw me in the pit. And there, me and my friend, the baker, had dreamt a dream. And to make the long story short, the, there was this guy in the jail and he was a Na'ad, Ivri Evid. He was young. He's a uh, foreigner. He's a servant. So just so we know, even in Sad Hamashkim's telling Pharaoh, he wasn't really looking to save Yosef. He was looking to save his own skin. He figured if Pharaoh is able to get an interpretation, maybe he won't hang all these people in his court at the gallows. So most people believe it wasn't to save Yosef, it was to save his own skin. But regardless, those are the ways of God. Man plans and God laughs. You may want to call this Yosef a Na'ad Ivri Eved, but in a couple of minutes, that little nobody that little uh, pauper, that prisoner is going to become a prince because those are the ways of God. So it doesn't matter what Sad Hamashkim is trying to, uh, uh, you know, uh, suggest. Anyway, he tells the king that we had dreams and he answered and he interpreted them. And according to the interpretation, exactly that's what happened. So Pharaoh sends for Yosef, they wash him, and we pray again every week and every day. We pray that this is going to happen to our Jewish souls that are underground or in a place where they are imprisoned or in a place where they're not seeing the light of day, where they are not free. We're hoping and praying that just like Yosef is going to be sent for,
and he's going to be washed and he's going to be dressed and he's going to be brought to the king. We hope that they soon, this week, today, this minute, we don't even want to waste any time. We said when we pray, ask for the whole enchilada, ask for the whole thing. Right now, as we speak, may these people who need to be spared, may they be spared as well. And may they not only come back, but may they be able to ascend and sit in positions of wisdom, of honor, of prosperity. May they ultimately be our saviors, because this is what happens to Yosef. He's the one that needs saving, and he ends up being the one to save everybody else. So we have great hopes that this is doable, and it's doable in the blink of an eye. Nobody could have ever written the script for this. That's what makes it so magnificent. So they bring out Yosef, Paroz tells the dream, and now Yosef is going to interpret the dream that Paroz is telling him about, except this time, instead of the side-by-side, the cows and the wheat standing side-by-side, He's going to add a detail. And the detail that he adds is that after the skinny cows swallow up the fat cows, it says, We have a new now. This is Paro's interpretation of what he saw. After the fat cows swallowed the skinny cows, the skinny cows looked equally as weak. And this is what I mean about awakening versus woke. If the purpose of the skinny cows was just to swallow the fat cows because the fat cows were fat and because they were skinny and there was an inequality and they were the other ones had privilege and they felt that that was their sense of justice, let's follow up the fat cows. In that scenario, guess what? Even after swallowing the fat cows, if that was your plan, I'm going to swallow them up, then you know what? It's going to be marehen rak asher You don't reach a place of fulfillment, of growth, of even of equality by swallowing somebody else up. Because if you're going to do that, Mar'ehen is going to be ra'ka'asher batechilah. You're going to be no better off than you were before. This is not the avenue for greatness to be achieved. This could be applied in so many ways across the board. Yosef is also hearing something else. And he is saying, maybe my brother's the big, fat, gorgeous, robust brothers, children of Leah, maybe they felt that what we were doing when I was telling them that I was going to be king and that they asked me, what kind of a king are you going to be? You're going to be a dictator? You're going to be an absolute monarch? Are you going to want us to serve you? Or are you going to be a melech where you serve us, where we all work together? Is this going to be a dictatorship? Is this going to be a democracy? And at the time, unfortunately, Yosef doesn't answer that question. And so maybe he's seeing from the perspective of his brothers that if they allow Yosef to live and continue on the path 
to leadership that he's dreaming about, that Yosef and his brothers, his cohorts, are going to swallow them up and there will be no remnant of their ever having existed. They will not, there won't even be any evidence of their existence. And we know we say, if you want to defend the actions of the brothers who sold Yosef and stripped him of his coat, it could be that they believed it's us or him. If we allow him to continue, it's going to be to our demise, to our uh, obliteration. And there is a halacha, if somebody's coming to obliterate you, hashkim, you have to go up and beat him to the punch. You can't allow for yourself to become decimated. This is just another reading, another possibility. But when Paro tells this dream to Yosef, Yosef is holding the keys of all of the dreams. He's holding the keys of his own dreams, of the butler's dreams, of Paro's dreams. So when he puts them all together, he recognizes and he realizes that he recognizes a few things. And one of the things that he recognizes is that his dreams had an element of time involved in there. Because the first echad that's mentioned is that the wheat was olot bekane echad. The wheat was coming up in one. And the second echad talks about balayla echad. He's starting to say, you know what? If I count my 11 stars and I count the 11 sheaves, they add up to 22. And maybe the dream was telling me that in 22 years, all of this is going to happen. Because we know that now it's 22 years to the day from when Yosef was taken. How do we know that? He was a Na'ad of 17. And he's 30 when he's standing before Paro. That gives us 13 years. We add another seven years for the good seven good years. That gets brings us to 20. And then it's in the second year of the starvation, of the famine that they come. And that's the 22 years. Yosef starts to realize that there is something at play here. And in recognizing this, he also recognizes that the, and this is what I think Paro loves most about what Yosef proposes. Yosef and the Midrash and uh, um, there are a lot of writings where the previous interpreters said you're going to have seven daughters, uh, you're going to, seven daughters are going to be born to you, and then seven daughters are going to die for you. All of this didn't make sense to Paro because it was very important in the dream for the two to be coexisting, for the two to be side by side. And none of those interpretations were giving Paro that. But Yosef, who reads and recognizes and hears that the seven Parot, and we're going to say that this, even though it makes so much sense because we've read it so many times, this was really a divinely inspired uh, um, solution. I don't know that anybody, and I know that nobody until now is able to come up with it, but what Yosef suggests, that there's going to be seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine, he doesn't just give him that, because at that point, Paro could say, send them back in the dungeons. Who needs this guy? It's the fact that Yosef comes up 
with the idea to say, Paro, you need to appoint an Ishnavon Vechacham. You need to appoint a wise man who is going to take matters in his hands, <coughs> who is going to appoint Vayafked Pekidim. We see these words, we should get chills up our spines. Because the Torah is telling us, in case you missed all the vehines, and in case you missed all of the echads, and in case you missed the four kosot, let me tell you, make no mistake about it. Vayavket pekidim, this is a story about pakad. Fasten your seatbelts because the word pakad doesn't just mean to appoint uh, ministers. It, and it doesn't just mean pakad like to remember. It means that God is going to be in every detail of this story and that everything that seems unnatural in the physical world is going to become completely natural in the way God's going to operate his world henceforth. So if you're looking for these gorgeous words, Vayafked Pekidim, it's in chapter 41, verse 34. What Yosef is saying, he's not just speaking to Pharaoh, the, God, the king of Egypt. He's speaking to the king of the world at the same time. Like Esther is speaking to Melech HaChashverosh, but at the same time she's speaking to God. And she's saying, please, he's saying, excuse me, please appoint somebody who is wise and discerning. Let's remember these words because my plan is to take you into the Haftarah, which is fabulous. So I'm going to take you through this quickly. We're, there we're also going to have a wise and discerning person. And Yosef's suggestion is that during the years of plenty, we store up and build storehouses so that we'll have grain for the years of famine. Why is that such a big breaking open, breaking the case open moment for Pharaoh. Because he finally realizes that by bringing the years of plenty into the years of famine, and by bringing the years of famine into the years of plenty, what I mean by that is we're going to take the wheat from the first seven years into the storehouses for the second seven years. And at the same time, because we're conscious and cognizant of the seven years of famine that are about to come during the years of plenty, we are going to engage with the years of starvation. And there's a very, very beautiful uh, piece to this story. And they say that how is it that Yosef was able to keep his grain, the grain that he stored for seven years, how was he able to keep it fresh? How is it possible that everybody else was storing up wheat and grain, but it was only in the granaries of Paro that nothing spoiled and everybody else's spoiled? That's why they had to keep pouring all their money into the treasury of the king because they needed to buy wheat at any price. And they said that Paro had this little trick. I mean, Yosef had this little trick. And how did he come to know this? He understood that when you take something away from its point of origin, if you take something away from its birthplace, it cannot thrive 
unless it has some elements of its breeding ground, of its place that it was born. What do I mean by that? Yosef is going to have two children. He's going to name one Menashe, which seems to sound like, oh my gosh, thank goodness, Nashani Elohim, God help me forget my horrible place, my father's place, Bet Amali, that place where I was so uh, uh, miserable, Kol Amali, Bet Avi, I'm forgetting out with the old, that was Menashe. And maybe that was the first cutting. You know, you first cut the wheat and it separates itself from the ground that it was nurtured in. But Yosef has a second son, and that son he calls Ephraim. And that son, he says, Hifrini Elohim Be'eretz Oni. In the first son, Kena'an was the place of his suffering. With his second son, Mitzrayim is the place of his impoverishment, which means what to us? It means that when you first cut the wheat, it could survive on its own. Good luck and good riddance and goodbye to the past. I never want to see you miserable people again. But by the time he has his second son, he realizes that he will not be able to flourish, that he will not be able to stay uh, fresh and whole unless what? unless he recognizes that the place that he is in is a place that's impoverishing him because why? He needs to bring some of his past into his present in order to stay healthy. What do I mean by that? Yosef, what he did, practically speaking, which is fantastic, and it's been proven by agriculturalists today, is in the storehouse where he would keep the grain, he would also keep some of the dirt or the earth from which that grain was taken. And he would store the grain together with that earth so that, like his two sons were named, so that although he was cut away, they were cut away from it, he still had some portion of it. What does that mean to us, practically speaking, today? It doesn't matter how far geographically we are removed from our roots. We must keep a connection to our origins, our morality, our heritage, Eretz Yisrael, our parents, our grandparents, we need to keep connected to the places that we came from if we want to be able to survive and not atrophy. And so here, what Yosef is saying is, I'm going to build these storehouses and I'm going to allow for the famine to, to stand next to the plenty, for the cut wheat to stand next to the place which it had come from. And in doing this, Yosef is starting to suggest and show us how redemption is going to come. The whole story of Yosef is really paving the way now 
for Moshe. We're almost finishing. We have Miketz, Vayigash, Vayichi, and then boom, we go into Shemot. Guess what? Moshe, I'll, I'll, I, I gave you the punchline, but I'll just tell you to think about for a minute another person who's half Hebrew and half Egyptian. And he's estranged from his brothers as well. And he goes to see and check on his brothers. He even marries a daughter of a foreign priest. Because here we know that Yosef is going to marry Osnat Bat Potifera Kohen On. The trajectory that Yosef is going to go on now, where he's estranged from his brothers, but then he reunites and has compassion for his brothers, same like Moshe. Moshe is going to be estranged from his brothers. He's a, he's a Mitzri. They don't even know, they, they want nothing to do with him. Even when he comes with the word of God that they're going to be saved. They are very, very standoffish with him. He's not one of them. But Moshe also marries a daughter of Yitro Kohen Midian, of a foreign priest's daughter. And both of them have two children, Yosef and Moshe. And Yosef's children are going to be named to describe the conditions that he's living in no differently than Moshe's two sons. He's going to have Gershom, Ger Hayiti Be'eretz Nochria. He's going to have Eliezer, Eli Be'ezri. The names of the children are going to depict not just the Redeemer, but the redemption as well. From Yosef, we're going to learn a very important law or lesson of redemption, which is that in order for us to be whole and to be able to stay intact in a foreign land, we need to keep and hold on to our heritage. That's the whole story of Hanukkah, is that even in our land, they wanted us, it was a, it was not a war where they wanted to kill us. It was a war where they wanted us to disconnect from our God and from our heritage. The Hellenized Jews had an extreme denial of self. They, they had to deny who they actually were. And then the Zealots, they were obsessed with cultural purity. They, the zealots were the ones who were saying, there's no way, we're not even giving an inch. We need to stay 100% pure. But they were in denial of the world. And Yosef is coming to say, you can't be not the Hellenized Jews, where you're going to deny yourself and you're going to just be untrue to yourself and be half Greek and half Jewish. That's not going to work. This is where we're going to take a page from Yosef. He's not going to be a full-blown Mitzri. But at the same time, we can't only be obsessed with cultural purity and deny that the rest of the world exists. There needs to be a balance. Yosef is going to be the model Jew in Egypt who's going to put his Jewish family and his heritage first. And he is, at the same time, going to engage with the world. This is 
Yosef is the answer. He's the one that we go to when we want to try and figure out. They compare him a lot to Mordechai because they say, how can uh, one live in exile but still maintain their uh, integrity? And so with this story, Yosef is celebrated. He gives an answer where the king himself says, does anybody know of anybody who is uh, as wise and as a hanimtsa kazeish asheruach elohimbo? Anybody could point out for me a person who has the spirit of Elohim within them? And he says, Ein navon vechacham kamocha. There is nobody smarter or wiser or more discerning than you. This is going to be my springboard to go into this week's Haftarah. This week's Haftarah, we happen to be very, very fortunate. First of all, Chodesh Tov. I don't know why I forgot to say that. Rosh Chodesh Tevet. Again, may this year bring tons of light and blessing today and the whole month and the whole the rest of the year. Um, but this idea of a very wise and discerning man who has the uh, Ruach Elohim, who has a godly knowledge, not just a regular uh, intellect, it's uh, inspired intellect, I would say. And so why I was starting to say we're so lucky is because the Shabbat of Parashat Miketz is often Rosh Chodesh, and then we would read a different Haftarah, or very often it's still Hanukkah, and we would read a different Haftarah. But this week, since it's neither Rosh Chodesh nor Hanukkah, if you could go to, if you have a Tanakh, that's great. If any of you are still operating from these blue um, stone edition books, it would be on page 1143. For those of you who have a Tanakh and want to follow along, it's Melachim Aleph, Kings 1, chapter 3. And for those of you who are just absorbing, I will be as depictive as possible. So just so we know, the Haftarah for Miketz, which is in the book of Melachim, the beginning of the book of Melachim talks about King David passing on and passing the mantle of leadership to his son, Solomon. King Solomon, Shlomo, is 12 years old at the time. And before our Haftarah starts, the parts that they don't tell us is the famous story where God asks King Solomon and tells King Solomon, um, what would you like? He comes to him in a dream and he says, what can I give you? And King Solomon asks specifically for a, an understanding heart to judge the people so he could discern between good and evil. So he wants uh, a, a lev shomea, a heart that hears. He wants to lehavin. He wants to understand ben tov vara. And God is so impressed by Shlomo. And he says, because lo sha'alta, you didn't ask for long life, and you didn't ask for oshed, for riches, for yourself, and you didn't ask for the hands of nefesh oivecha, for the hands of, for the your death of your enemies, 
but you asked for uh, havana for understanding lishmoa mishpat so you could discern justice well guess what not only am I going to give what you asked for, but I'm also going to give you what you didn't ask for, and riches, and honor, so that no kings will be like you all the days of your life. And then God says, and if you'll follow my ways, I will give you length of days. That's what precedes the Haftarah that we're about to read now. The Haftarah is fantastic. I wish I left myself more time with it, but I'll give it to you as quickly as I can. It starts in verse 15, where similar to our parasha, where there is a king who awakens, Vayikatz Shelomo. Shelomo awakens. And again, the Torah is very clear to say this is an awakening this is an awakening when it is done with uh, Torah, with wisdom from above, um, with purity, with peacefulness, with nobility. This is what we mean about this kind of awakening. I'll explain it a little more. Um, so he awakens, and behold, it was a dream. Vehinechalom. We have all our words that we started out with, Vayikatz, Vehine, Chalom, and this is why the commentaries may have chosen this particular uh, excerpt to couple together with this week's Perasha. And this is the famous story, many of you are familiar with it, where there are two harlots who come to the king and they stand before him. You'll remember the story. One of them comes and she says, we live together, me and this other woman. I delivered first, she delivered three days later. Her child died by suffocation. So she rose in the middle of the night and swapped out her child with my living child. And in the morning, I realized what she had done. You know this judgment of King Solomon. It's very, very famous. What to do with the living child? What to do? There's two mothers and one living child. A lot of asides to take away from this, which are very beautiful, is that a true leader, a chacham, a navon, and a true king is one who is going to decide cases even among the lowest rungs, the lowest echelons of society. Imagine two harlots standing in front of the king. They normally in any other society would never even get access to the king. Yet here, that's one aside to take away from King Solomon or from what the Torah wants to show is the pathway to having a true uh, uh, kingship or true rulers. And now he needs to have compassion and figure out what to do with these two women. And so as she's telling her story, uh, the other woman answers and she says, no, no, law, that's not true. Ki benihachai, my son is the live one. And your son is the one who died. And the first lady comes back and answers and said, no, 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 the dead is your son and the living is my son. And a lot of the commentaries play with this and say that the responding woman 
not the first one who stated the case, the responding woman says, She talks about the living child before she talks about the dead child. But the original woman who brought the case says, She says, your child's the dead. She talks about the dead child before she talks about the living child. So many people say this could have been what tipped off Shilomo to know which one, the one who's going to talk about the child still alive, that is what's most important to her and what's most real to her. And the one who lost her child and the one who's grieving a terrible uh, circumstance is going to have on her mind first and foremost that her son has died. Regardless, the king comes and says the famous, bring me a sword. And they bring him a sword. And the king says, okay, cut the kid in two, divide the child in two. Cut him in half, give one half to one and give the other half to the other. And everybody's sitting at the edge of their seat, they're panicking. He has a 12-year-old child who's coming up with the most heinous of solutions of all. Why would we want to kill the only living child? That makes no sense whatsoever. And at that exact moment, the reader will never know which of the women is the true mother or which of the women says this. It says, We don't know if the woman whose son was the live one is the one who made the opening statements, and we don't know if she's the one who made the rebuttal. But it says that she speaks because her heart, her heart was filled with compassion for her son. And she says, give the child, let him live and give her to the other woman. Don't kill him. But the other woman responded. Now, we don't know which of the women said which, but we know one said, don't kill the child. And the other woman said, Gamli, Gamlach, Lohi Yihieh. He's not going to be mine, so he's not going to be yours. He's not going to be, if I can't have him, you can't have him. Gizro, uh, cut him in half. At that point, the king answers and says, Give the child, the living child, to the one who asked him not to be killed. She is his mother. Now, there's a lot at play here, and we don't have a ton of time, but maybe we can glean some understandings, and maybe we could understand that what the mother who didn't want to cut the child in half, and many commentaries say there was no way, either A, he took a big risk, <laughs> but you know we needed somebody to say, no, 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 don't kill him. I don't think he took a risk. I think he knew already prophetically that this would play out in this way. But for us today, reading this story, we need to take away more pieces with us other than just that here's a king who's wise, who has the wisdom of God, just like Yosef is now going to be Chacham and Avon. There has to be more to it. And I think maybe what the woman who said, don't split him, maybe she was envisioning this 
scenario of a shared custody. I get him half the time, you get him half the time. Or maybe she was saying, don't split him with modern society ideals, which are wisdom from below and mixing it together with this wisdom from above, a Torah life. Maybe what she was saying is the child needs to remain whole, like Yosef needed to remain whole. There needs to be a wholeness. This child can't be uh, separated. There's going to be an instability. It's going to be unhealthy. The child's going to become confused. He needs to be reared in a place where the message and, and the ideals are unified, where they're not divided. And she says, I'd rather have my child grow up in one place with stability than confuse him with all of these um, conflicting values, let's say. And so we have on the part of the mother who says, give her the living child, that is a, a sacrifice for the well-being of the child, even at the expense of the parent. But that's not who I want to focus on. Who I want to focus on and will end our class is, what did that other mother, the one who said, I don't care, cut him in half. If I can't have him, you can't have him. What kind of language do we hear in that woman's voice? The woman who's saying, cut him equally in half. We're here for, for equality. Either everybody gets him or nobody gets him. Or we each get a half of it. What kind of a world would we be living in if we allowed for that philosophy to permeate our society? King Solomon, way ahead of his time, understood that if you're going to allow the voice of the one who wants justice at the cost of murder, at the cost of uh, uh, um, doing what you need to do, if, you, if that's the way that you're going to try and level the playing field, then you have no role in educating or rearing the next generation. It's the mother who understands that the child needs to have a pure, a noble, a unconfusing uh, upbringing. There's no way he's gonna give that child to the mother who says, cut him in half. This is King Solomon. This is, he's speaking to us today. He's speaking to us in our times. I didn't have the guts to entitle the class Awake versus Woke. But I think being awake, Vayikatz, the way that our perasha and our haftara start, are we need to be awake. We need to see what's right. We need to see like Yosef with chokhmah, with wisdom, with a discerning uh, sense of justice, with a sense of Torah wisdom. That is what we call being awake. Everything else is anything but. 
I apologize that I went over time. Um, I thank you for joining us today. I know that 